And welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. Thank you so much for joining us as we come your way Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at richarddugan.com. Podcasts are at SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and a whole bunch of other locations that I don't even know where they exist. It kind of goes to that old question, where is the Internet? <laughs> Who runs it? Who owns it? Uh, uh, where does it exist? Where does it reside? And all those, all those fun things. Well, we're going to have some fun today. We have a returning guest to our program. I am very excited to have with us once again Bernie Siegel. Uh, last time he was with us, he was with his grandson Charlie, and what a fun time we had. That was really a lot of fun, not only uh, hearing about the book that you two put together, the, the selected writings and poetry of the two of you, but also just learning more and more about the connection that you and uh, and Charlie have and uh, it's it's just a beautiful thing to see and to hear about so welcome back to our program Charlie Siegel a bar- Bernie Siegel I beg your pardon Bernie Charlie's not with us this time right well he's with us you know it's like you say the internet yeah consciousness is non-local yeah uh, and well, as Jung said, the future is unconsciously prepared long in advance and therefore can be guessed by clairvoyance. And so when Elizabeth Kubler-Ross used to say to me years ago, Bodhani, there are no coincidences. I realized what she was saying. We're all creating our future. Mm. And I expect coincidences. That, and then I know I'm on the right path, you that, know, that yeah. they keep happening. Well, and, I like uh, to pronounce that word coincidences. Things yeah. that coincide. And right. I'm with you. I do not believe there are any accidents uh, or coincidences, as, as many people would, uh, would say. Uh, that, yes, I think that whether we know what they are or not, things do happen for a reason. Right. Um, I don't know if you watch much television or have you, if you have in the past, but there have been some really remarkable programs on where they will start out telling two, three, or four different totally independent stories. And as the program or even the movie progresses, these stories start to intersect. Somehow, some way, one story bleeds over into the other, bleeds over into the other, bleeds over into the other. And, and that's the way life is. There are eight billion stories going on all at the same time. And every yeah. so often, we we connect, and it's really kind of a cool thing. Yeah, and I mean, my whole life went that way. I went to a workshop when I had started wanting to help cancer patients in, well, a different way, and um, not just as a surgeon. And sitting next to me, and interesting, you talk about medicine, uh, Carl, Dr. Carl Simonton was running the conference. He had written a book, Getting Well Again. To empower cancer patients. I was the only doctor out of 150 people sitting in the audience. I couldn't believe that not one oncologist in the whole state came to listen. But my patients sat around me and one of them said to me, you're a nice guy. I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me. So I need, I need to know how to live between office visits. I thought, wow, I don't have to be a failure anymore, you know, not able to cure everything. 
if I help people live, then I've done something. And what's fascinating, my partner was named Richard Selzer. He was a very intuitive guy, has written books also. We had quite a practice um, as surgeons. We were not normal surgeons, and that's a compliment. But I come in the office on Monday, and he said, you're gone. I said, excuse me, what are you talking about? He said, you're not the same person you were on Friday. You're going to quit surgery. And I don't know whether it was 10 or 15 years later, but yeah, I did. You know, after I started the support groups, did all kinds of things, was lecturing and traveling. And people were saying, you know, you can help more people by talking than staying in the office. So <laughs> I did. And the other is what you're talking about, your choice. I, I use the word experience in this sense, because um, you could say to people, what's your choice? I would say, what are you experiencing? And if they said, I have cancer of the colon, I said, that's not your experience, that's your diagnosis. What are you experiencing? The words that they mentioned were always about their life. The pressure, the pressure in her life, which was causing her enormous pain, was her marriage. Mm. And as soon as I got her to see that, just talking to her about the pressure in your life, you know, think about it. What it, she, her pain disappeared. She got up and went home instead of being admitted to the hospital. Failure. That was another one that impressed me. How does it fit your life? Well, my body failed. I have cancer. That's not my question. Oh, my parents committed suicide when I was a child. I must have been a failure as a child. So using words and also drawings, because I did a, an outdoor scene drawing for Elizabeth and she knew more about my life. I couldn't believe it. I'm drawing this, you know, outdoor scene that came up. I just made it. And she was asking me questions like, why is 11 important? Why are you covering up? Um, and it's like, why are you asking? Well, you drew 11 trees. Well, you used a white crayon on a white piece of paper. You didn't need it. You added a layer. And every question she had was significant for me. Mm. So literally, I went back to the hospital and got a box of crayons and started handing it to patients in the emergency room and other places. And then I thought I was learning something nobody else knew. But I learned that Jung <laughs> did that like 100 years ago. And the interesting thing, as I talked to various Jungian therapists all over the planet, they said he was fascinated by the somatic aspects. I said, yes, he was a doctor. He knew anatomy. So he saw that on the paper, on the drawing. Whereas an art therapist, you know, or a psychologist who doesn't know anatomy may see emotional issues, but is not going to see the physical issues in the drawing. So those drawings became fascinating in the hospital. And I always go on to finish with my patients at first were all considered crazy um, because of their attitude and things that they would, you know, picture in their mind and so forth. And then it became a complimentary term. Oh, that's one of Siegel's crazy patients. Now, why? Because somebody would have surgery and say, oh, no, I'm feeling fine. I don't need pain medication. Or somebody would have radiation, chemotherapy, and no side effects. And they used to think, well, maybe something's wrong with the machine or the nurse didn't put the medication in. 
And then they'd say, oh no, Siegel's name is in the chart. It's just one of his crazy patients. And it showed them how powerful everybody's mind was that when they pictured something in a positive way, their body expected it to be a positive experience. And uh, as I say, it impressed the hell out of me uh, because I was learning from the patients also because it's not part of your medical training. Oh, and then that wonderful word came up. Here's Dr. Siegel, the controversial Dr. Siegel. And I got on more talk shows because I was controversial and they would invite people, other doctors to tell me I'm crazy. I don't know what I'm doing or I'm blaming my patients by looking into their lives. But again, one more quote from Jung. The diagnosis helps the doctor, but it doesn't help the patient. For there, the key thing is the story. For it alone shows human background and human suffering. And only at that point can the doctor's therapy begin to operate. So... Mm. Tell us, uh, since one of the reasons we have you here, of course, is you have a new book out. It's it's oh, yes. fiction this time. It's a novel. It's, uh, what is it, Three Men and Six Lives? Yeah, I call it nonfiction novel. Nonfiction novel. Well, the reason I say that, the people created are, you know, fiction. I made them. Though one of them is me, and I'm sure I mentioned that in the introduction to the book. He's, he's a surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, but the stories are not fiction. They are past lives that people, including me, experienced. And again, what changed me is I didn't go to a psychiatrist and say, I want to have a past life regression therapy session. I was talking to a friend who made a phone call and it's like, you're going to interview me. So I said to her, um, I'm sorry, I've got to be on the phone in a minute with an interview. I can't really talk now. And she said, why are you living this life? Because she knew how busy I was. And I went into a trance because she said, why are you living this life? And I said to her, oh my God. She said, are you okay? What's the matter? I said, it's like I'm watching a movie of myself. I'm seeing myself with a sword and killing people, their pets. Maybe that's why I'm a surgeon. And, you know, our conversation ended a short time after that. Um, but it really shook me up. And then months later, I'm flying cross country alone. My wife was home. And so I have these several hours of just sort of dozing off. And I went into a trance again and saw myself living out the full story. Um, and let me share it with you, if you don't mind, in, in short terms. I, I, I went to get therapy because I killed a young woman who was my is my wife in this life. When I saw her face, I went and went ahead and killed her. So I was crying for hours and, and just wiped out. I got in touch with the Jungian therapist, um, oh, for James Hillman. And uh, he said, come on up, come on up. I'll talk to you, I'll try to help you. I went up there and I sat down and I said, I'm a knight. My Lord asked me to kill the neighbor's daughter because of the problems he was causing on land between the two castles. And 
Hillman said, stop, Bernie. What is it? Did you hear what you said? What do you mean? You said my Lord. I said, yes, yeah, the Lord of the castle. No, Bernie, it's your Lord. You need to go home and relive this with that knowledge. And when he said that, it touched many aspects of my life because I have questioned biblical characters like Abraham and Jesus who are fulfilling God's requests in a sense. But why? You know, I always think, why didn't Abraham say, leave my kid alone, take me? Or why didn't Jesus jump off the cross and impress everybody? Those are things I used to think about that I would have done if I were them. Mm-hmm. Um, because when my Lord asked me to kill the neighbor's daughter, I had said, why don't I kill the father? He's the problem. No, I want you to kill her. Well, what if I don't? Then I'll kill you. Okay, I'm going. <laughs> and what I learned was if I had said yes, he would have said, okay, I know you have faith in me. I want you to go and bring those people here so we can work this problem out. And as crazy as this may sound, I really felt that my wife and I marrying in this life healed our families, even though it was a past life. Because I was reading a story in which a man buys a farm and he hits something under the ground as he's plowing and he digs it up and it's a, you know, a case of treasures. So he calls the guy who sold him the land. He says, hey. I found this. It's yours. It was your property. I'm just plowing. No, no, it's yours. You own the property. And the two of them get into an argument. And a third guy comes by and says, hey, you got a son. You got a daughter. Tell them to get married and give them this as a wedding present. When I read that, I thought, wow, maybe that's what my wife and I did. These two families now became one family in this life. And there's nothing more to fight over. You know, we could have the land they were fighting over as our wedding present. And and again, it's just that these things made sense to me in a way that was beyond just reading a story. Yeah. And one other story called, um, oh, I forgot the name of it, but it'll come to me. But in it, a knight returns from the war. He knows his wife has given birth to a child. So he goes right in and runs up to the nursery room. He opens the door. It's covered with blood. The crib is turned upside down. His dog is covered in blood. He thinks, oh, my God, my dog has killed my baby. And he takes out his sword and kills the dog. Then he lifts up the crib and there's a dead wolf. That's the name of the story, Wolfen, and his healthy living baby lying there. And he realized he killed his own dog after the dog saved his child's life. And when I read that, I busted out crying. I was reading it to the children. And they said, Dad, it's a story. What are you doing? What's the matter with you? What are you crying about? But now I know why I was crying, because it touched me in the sense of my past life and what I had done. Because the night I killed my wife, her dog was in the bedroom with her, so I killed the dog first so he wouldn't attack me. And that's part of what woke her up and made it even more difficult to go ahead and kill her. When did but, you when did you start learning about your past lives and why? I I didn't ask for any <laughs> of it. You know, as I said, a woman said to me on the telephone, "Why are you living this life?" And that that made it happen. Yeah. 
I, I didn't understand it or I deny it or anything. I just thought, okay. And another interesting thing, you see the coincidences. One of our kids comes home from school and I could go get it if you wanted to see it. It's a canvas, maybe three feet by a foot and a half. He wrote the word words all over the canvas. His teacher even said to him, why did you do that? But what happens when you write words, words, words? They become swords, swords, swords. And oh, wow. he walked in the house with it. And I thought, what would make him do that? But I really felt it had some connection with me in my life. And he was trying to help that you can heal with the sword or you can kill with a sword. You mm -hmm. can heal with a word or you can kill with a word. And I mean that literally. You take people's hope away and they go home and lie down and die. So I learned I can help with a sword or a word. And it's part of how I became a very different controversial doctor, you know, talking to people and getting them to draw pictures and visualize and meditate and all kinds of things. But what you learn is, get back to you and your word choice, when people learned they had a few months to live and they were told, you know, that and accepted it and then made their choice, I'm moving to Colorado. I'm buying a house on the ocean in Florida. I'm closing my law office and playing my violin in an orchestra. I'm getting a dog and putting in a backyard wildlife habitat. I'm not going for treatment. I'm a landscaper. I'm going to make the world beautiful. So when I die, I leave the beautiful world. None of those people died when they were supposed to. Um, and sometimes when I called up to ask why I wasn't invited to the funeral, that's when you bust out laughing because the person you thought was dead answered the phone. You know, it's like a year later, I called to say to the family, I told you I would come to the funeral. Why didn't you call me? And the person who answered, this fellow said, oh, it's so beautiful here, I forgot to die. Oh, I have a letter that ends with, you know, I bought a dog, put it in the backyard, I've had that laugh more, took vitamins, and, you know, it went on and on and on. And at the end of the page, her letter says, and now I'm so busy, I'm killing myself. Help, where do I go from here? I told her to take a nap. But, I mean, it, it was when they changed their lives, their body got the message. See, on, on simple terms, Monday, we have more heart attack, strokes, suicides, and illnesses. It's related yeah. to how you feel. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's coronavirus or cancer or anything else, if you're having a happy life, pets, laughter, you're less likely to get the virus or other diseases than the person who's depressed and unhappy and hates their job and everything else. So all those things enter into it. And I may add also the three men, six lives. I'm trying to wake people up to life. You know, I've experienced these things. So they can't tell me, oh, you're crazy. I'm telling you a story. It's my story. It really happened. And that's what people need to understand. I'm trying to help them learn about life hmm. and that they shouldn't be afraid because that was something that really shocked me too. When you're trying to help people live a longer, better life, but you say to them, you have to read a book, you have to answer questions, you need to draw a picture, how few people show up? Well, I'm busy, how do I find time to read a book? I'm not an artist, how can I draw a picture? You know, I don't have time for your questions. <laughs> and then there are other people who say, I'll see you tomorrow. 
You know, I'll sit up and read the book. I'll go. Those are survivors. See, psychiatrists understand it better than medical physicians. Um, they will write articles about immune competent personality, about survivor personality, because when they're helping people with the illness, they notice the quality of the people who do well. And just quickly, then I'll try to hold my breath for you for a minute. <laughs> um, I sent articles to, psych to medical journals first, and they were sent back saying it's interesting, but it's not appropriate for our journal. Mm. That drives me nuts. It's like you take the head and put it away and you just treat people's body back to the diagnosis. So I sent it to psychiatry journals who came back again. But this time it said, yes, it's appropriate, but it isn't interesting. We know this. Mm. And so, again, I always say doctors get medical information. They don't get an education. They're not taught about people. And often when the doctor gets sick or their loved ones get sick, then I get a call thanking me. There's one book um, called Healing Lessons by Dr. Sidney Winnower down in Florida, I think he is. And um, he wrote a book and sent me a copy. And in it, it said, I want to apologize to Dr. Dr. Siegel. So I called him. I said, what are you apologizing for? I don't even know you. You sent me a book. What are... He said, I was apologizing for what I thought of you. <laughs> now that my wife has cancer, you are a big help. You're with us every evening and you're a big help. Oh, and I thought, yeah. again, see how interesting it is. When it happens, <laughs> then suddenly Siegel isn't so controversial anymore. Yeah. He's helping us live with the experience. Incredible. Sacred Stories Publishing is the company that's putting out the book, sacredstoriespublishing.com, where you can find out more about Bernie Siegel and his latest work, uh, The th uh, Three Men and Six Lives. This, to me, is fascinating because I went, uh, I, I haven't had uh, a regression therapy, nor have I had anybody just walk up to me and, and make those kinds of comments. But I became familiar with through uh, one of my guests uh, some uh, a year or so ago, uh, a technique, it's called LBL, called Life Between Lives Therapy. And basically what it does is, uh, for me, my experience was, because I can only speak to that, um, it takes you through to your past life, your in my case, my last life before this one, right. takes me through that life and to the point at which I passed. And it was a life where I was a farmer and had a barn off to the side. I think I had a few cattle, that kind of thing. One day, and, and I'm doing fine and getting along with everybody in this small town. This was in the Old West. And uh, my barn burns down. And the field catches fire, so I don't have much of anything left. So I happen to have a cabin up north. And uh, so I go up to the mountains to my cabin and... I'm living there for I don't know how long. <laughs> and uh, someone is very alive at that end, but that's okay. And um, I go out and sit out on my porch, put my feet up on the railing, and I say, you know, this is a good life. It's been a good life. And I just pass. I just go. And then he takes me through the other uh, aspects of that existence following. And it was so fascinating 
And I read this book by James Benner going back to 1933. It's called The Impersonal Life. I've mentioned it before on this program. And in it, it talks about um, uh, past life regression. Now, this is like a conversation between uh, God and you, although this is one-sided. It's just God talking. And in one of the chapters, it talks about this whole business of past lives. And it says... You think that uh, you've went through past life regression and that you've lived many lives and you've done this and that and the other thing and you got the karma from this, that and the other thing. And I'm here to tell you that the truth is that you have not lived past lives. When you go through past life regression, you are tapping into the lives of my other manifestations, my other creations. And I got to thinking about that going, wow, boy, does that put life, past life regression on its, on its head? And I thought, well, wait a minute. Isn't the point of going through something like that to learn more about self, to learn more about why I am the way that I am mm-hmm. in the present? Because I have those characteristics in me. And so I thought, okay. From my perspective, there's no difference whether there's past lives or there aren't past lives. And I'm able to tap into those other lives in the past. I'm still going to learn something. I'm going to glean something. But I find it interesting that you have formulated this this uh, nonfiction. And when you say that you murdered your wife, you know, I'm sitting here going, OK, folks, you need to understand. He's talking about a past life. He's not talking about this lifetime. Right. Here. <laughs> so so don't be calling the police or anything like that. Don't dial 911. Plus, I don't know where Bernie is, so good luck with that. Um, But a lot of people really are attached in a real big way to their past lives. Um, Almost sometimes to the exclusion of the present life. Uh, Do you find do you find people uh, that you come across? And I think that I really felt as a child, I was involved in art, mm -hmm. drawing pictures. But I didn't know that you could earn a living as an artist. I mean, I never went to museums. I didn't know there was art that was worth a million dollars, okay? Or I might have never become a surgeon. I have a house full of portraits. I mean, well, one of them, as a matter of fact, when Elizabeth said, what are you covering up? When the family and our pets got tired of posing, I painted myself in a surgical outfit with the cap, mask, and gown. You don't even know it's me. And boy, it really hit home to me, you know, when she used that term. But I think, well, I know all of it's stored in us. I'll tell you, to me, my prime example, um, let me just say for myself, I thought, well, you're not going to earn a living as an artist. You don't want to be an interior decorator or something. So why don't you be a surgeon? You can use your hands and help people. And that was a big, strong reason for why I became a surgeon. Um, The other was... The, uh, what am I thinking about now? Oh, I got so many thoughts in my head, I can't keep track of them. Um, but anyway, so I became a surgeon because I wanted to help people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that <laughs> watching a five-year-old, because I mentioned my childhood, mm-hmm. on television, about to play the violin for a concert orchestra. They said to him, how did you get interested? What happened? He said, I, the first time 
I mean, it's like his voice is in me. Yeah. The first time I saw a violin, I just fell in love with it, and I had to run over and hug it and hold it. And as soon as I heard that, I said, yeah, he's got a past life of a violinist. That's why at age five, he can stand there and play the violin because it's all in him. Yeah. I think what we do with it is the key, if you know what I mean. Yes, yes. What we're born with. So, yes, I've painted portraits and and seen how healing it is to spend time creating, uh, how healing it is to help people on an operating table. Um, and, and, you know, to realize with that knife, I'm healing people. Um, and also how I treat them as a human being. So all of those things become a part of it. And I think that the problem becomes, and I mean this literally, you know, why you want to understand your past life and your present life. Because when you let others impose a life on you, he used the biblical line, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. Mom and dad are screaming at you. We don't want you to be an artist. We want you to be a surgeon. We want you to be a lawyer. We don't want you to play a violin. We want to be proud of you, you know? <laughs> and so you give up your life to please them. Mm. Then you lose your life. And, and he, as I mentioned he, to you, then somebody says to you, you have two months to live. Oh, okay. I'm closing the office and I'm going to go do what I want to do. Yeah. yeah. For, for two months and then it's over. And and I know too that, that in addition to losing your life, your parents then in one sense are telling you that they want to live vicariously through your life right. that they're choosing for you. I didn't get yeah. to be a violinist because I had you. And so now I'm going to have you become the violinist so that I can, I can experience what sort of kind of experience what that is like. And I have to say my father who um, has never liked me uh, referring to him as a wise, a wise person. Uh, but I consider a lot of what he has said. He's 89 this year. And uh, he's told me many years ago, many things, but one of them was um, mm. find a job that you love doing because you're going to be doing it for a long time. Don't get stuck like I did. Well, he didn't stay stuck. He went back to junior college. He got his computer programming degree back in the late mid late seventies and was able to transition into another line of work after the company that he had been working for, for I don't know how many years moved to uh, Utah and he did not want to move the family to Utah. So uh, he made uh, some some very uh, significant choices there. And that is a key word in, of course, what we talk about, choices and knowledge of those choices. Well, you uh, see, he did what my parents did mm -hmm. for you. These were the three messages I received all my life. And when I was a kid, I thought, my parents are no help. I used to talk to God in the bedroom. Um, <laughs> so nobody would think I'm crazy. Because, you see, if I said to my mother... I need to make a choice, Mom. I got a problem. Do what makes you happy. Ma, I want you to help me decide what's the best thing to do. Do what makes you happy. <laughs> oh, you're no help. You know? And if I said, Ma, I really had a horrible day today. God is redirecting you. Something good will come of this. Now, that drove me crazy, too. You're looking <laughs> for compassion, for help. But I learned how many well-known spiritual leaders have parents like that. Norman Vincent Peale said to me one day, Bernie, my mother said, 
Norman, if God slams one door further down the corridor, another will be open. Mm. And my father's father died of tuberculosis, uninsured, a wife and six children. And my father, one day being interviewed, said, one of the best things that happened to me was my father dying when I was 12 years old. When he came home that night, I said, Dad, what are you talking about? You went through hell. He said, yeah, but it taught me what was important about life. And he was the sweetest, gentlest man I have ever known. He was always helping people financially and other ways. And I felt in a way that was how he controlled me because I, I would get upset if I did something that upset him. So I would always try to do the right thing so my father would be happy and proud of me. And let me give you one example that really stunned me one day when I was a youngster. The neighbor and I were playing in the front yard and I broke his toy because I was really jealous of this fancy elaborate thing he had. So his parents came over that evening and he said to my folks, Bernie broke our son's toy. And my father said, well, well, we'll replace it. Don't worry. Next day, he comes home with the toy. Now, let me say, he didn't yell at me that night or punish me or spank me. He comes home the next day with the toy in his hand from work. He walks over to me because I was outside and he said, here, I know you wanted one of these. And he hands me the toy with that statement and goes in the house. Now, I knew I could keep it. And he'd be disappointed, I'm sure, but wouldn't punish me. But that's how he had power. Because I thought, if I keep this, knowing what it means, my head will explode. I mean, the <laughs> pressure was incredible. So I got up and ran over to the other house and gave them the toy back. But that's what he taught me about life. So and, let, uh, let, let me I ask let, let and, me... and again, you know, you see, if you grow up with the love and those kinds of messages, you assume other children have grown up that way, too. Yeah. But the opposite is true. Read a book called um, the oh, by Ashley Montague, The Practice of Love. It's about children. And, and if you grow up without love, well, let me give you a statistic. Harvard students were asked in a study, did your parents love you? Those who said no, when they were middle-aged, 98% had suffered a major illness. Those who said yes, 24% had suffered a major illness. And it's not just your health, but it's every aspect of your life. When you grow up with self-worth, self-esteem, all those things. And that's the hard part. You know, the ones who come in sick to see you are the ones who did not grow up with that. And in high schools, talk to seniors and say, I want you to write for homework a suicide note tonight. And tomorrow night, I want you to write a love note, why you're worth loving. And when you're done, bring them both in. Put them on the desk. The suicide pile is three, four, five times higher than the love pile. Mm. Now, the benefit, because the teachers used to say to me, what are you doing? They'll go home and commit suicide now. I said, no, the opposite happens. Because when they come into class and they realize I'm not the only one who feels that way. 
Then they start talking to the other kids. Because before that, they lied. You know, the kids who were beaten up and abused, if you said, what happened? Oh, I fell off my bike. No, the story is my alcohol and father beat the hell out of me last night. You know? Mm. And um, oh, believe me, it blows my mind, the people sitting in my office, when I say, do you have a picture of yourself as a baby so I can show you you're worth loving? No. My parents are real estate agents. You want to see the house? And I don't make these things up. Oh, I know. And my I parents know. committed suicide. They were alcoholics. And they told all the children to commit suicide. And I'm the only one in my family who's still alive because I didn't do it right when I tried. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's the part that, well, you know the solution to every one of the people listening to this program. I didn't f discover it. A young lady's in my office, suicidal. And I'm sitting there with her. She said, you know, you're my CD. I said, what the hell are you talking about? I'm a You're my chosen dad. Mm. Wow. Yeah. That taught me how to help people. To say to them, I love you. I'll be your cho chosen dad. And, and she's sending me cards for the last 30 years. One, I, I always turn my head because it says, Happy Father's Day for my to my bonus dad. That was a new <laughs> term. Oh, and wow. it was on the printed card. I thought that was so neat. But she called me to ask for help committing suicide or giving her Jack Kaborkian's phone number years ago. And I said, I don't have his phone number and I love you. You're a child of God. And she's alive today, you know, and I'm her dad. Yeah. And it's, and as I say, it doesn't have to be legal, if you know what I mean. Right. It's her loving dad. And I always also say that I get more cards from her than I do from our five children because of what I meant in her life. I mean, our kids also know they were loved. And that impressed me, too, because one of them who drove us crazy, <laughs> we have five kids, you know, that was his way of getting attention. Right. But... One day I got an email from him saying, in case something were to happen to me and I were to die tomorrow, I want you to know I love you and mom. And I want to thank you for all the love you gave me. And boy, what a gift that is. Oh, gosh, yes. Because you know, he drove us nuts. Mm -hmm. But that letter, you know, that email heals your whole life when you get something like that. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, I have... On regular occasions, I have called my parents. As I said, my dad's 89, my mother 86 um, uh, this year as well. And doing very well, staying well, staying healthy, and uh, staying safe as well. Uh, and I call them uh, maybe every week to 10 days now. Uh, not just because of the COVID, but because partly because of uh, their getting up there in years, of course. And right. The last time I talked with my uh, my uh, my parents, which was just a few days uh, from this conversation that we're having, I said to my mother, um, I really want to thank you for giving all of us. And that's the six kids that they had uh, for giving all of us such a great head start on our health, because you would feed us the things that we would not, if we had any extra allowance, we would not go to the store and buy. Uh, you made 
things from scratch. She used to make yogurt, which was mm-hmm. fabulous. She would make yogurt popsicles. They would be like mm-hmm. orange sherbet. She'd put orange <laughs> juice in them. And they were fabulous with these toothpicks, you know. And yeah. we looked forward to those in the summertime. And then, I mean, and then, I, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, and uh, she did everything she could to give us a head start. One thing my father said to me when I was sitting in my room with my hand, my fist down inside a box of Captain Crunch, I was probably uh, 12 or 13, and he says, you know, if you don't stop eating that stuff, you're going to turn into a butterball. Pretty much that was all he had to say. Mm. Now, did I quit eating Captain Crunch? No. Did I uh, stay away from the sodas at that time? No. Uh, but I will tell you this, that here I am, this year I'm 60 years of age. I went in because, uh, to the medic because um, I, had a, uh, um, I was drinking a lot of water and I was peeing a lot. And, you know, I kind of had an idea what that was a symptom of, but I wasn't 100% certain. So my wife says uh, she knew and she, we were going to go see the medic. Ran my blood sugar, 544. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, uh, then they ran the blood, took the, took the test, and um, my average A1C for three months previous was 275. He says probably closer to 300, but 275, you know, we'll, that's, where, that's where it is. So he says, this is going to be a long journey, et cetera, et cetera. I says, no, sir, it is not going to be a long journey. I am not going to stay in this state for an extended period of time so after seven weeks and bernie i sure i'm sure you can appreciate this after seven weeks my blood sugar was down to a grand low of 79 and now it hovers around 100 now as of our conversation i need before i have them check my a1c i'm going to go three months Three months keeping the blood sugar at, at the levels it's supposed to be. Right. So that when they test my A1C for the previous three months, it's going to be five or better. Well, five is the range. It needs to be that. So can we make the right choices? For me, this was not a hardship yes. because I knew. You know, you talk about mindset. When he told me, I had about a half hour of shock going, no, I can't be dying. That's, that's ridiculous. I, other, other people get, no. And I finally said, you know what? The sodas, I haven't had a Coke. I haven't had a soda since the 23rd of July as of our conversation. Um, but it wasn't a hardship. It was because I knew what the cause was and I knew what I had to do. And if I was going to live to be 100 and non-diabetic... Uh, then this is what I needed to do. And basically my wife... The most important is that you loved yourself. Yeah. And my wife and I just went back to the diet that we were on before the pandemic started. That's what did it to us because we started shopping from the middle of the grocery store and eating all that processed stuff. I say two things. Yes. One is you can open the refrigerator and say, I've had a horrible life. I deserve this. You know, and eat all the wrong things. Or you can open the refrigerator and say, I love you. You're a wonderful guy. Don't eat that. It's not good for you. You know, or if you want to have one bite of it, fine. But that's all. And the self-love is the biggest part of it all. Yeah. That's why I say when you grow up with abuse, 
you're rewarding yourself with all these unhealthy things. And I may add, if you want to help yourself, there are many supplements that will help you keep your blood sugar down. Mm-hmm. Now, they're not drugs, but they help support your body. And um, Oh, absolutely. And, and one, and let me mention this because you brought it up. Sure. Um, metformin um, it can be taken as a prevention of diabetes. It's used to treat it. Mm-hmm. But a low dose of metformin each day will stop it from happening. It keeps the blood sugar down, supports the body. So there are a lot of things that you can do. Uh, you know, you need a prescription for that. Sure. But there are other supplements. One is called an AMPK, um, you know, supporter, because it helps do what mel- the metformin does. So there are many ways, I'd say, look into the health, you know, products and right. in industry and uh, it's not the pharmaceutical companies, but the supplement companies, so to right. speak. And uh, they can help educate you and keep you healthy. Well, I will and- give you uh, one in particular that I know works well because uh, the day that I got the diagnosis, the 24th, in addition to going to lunch and going to our regular place. And this time I ordered a chicken sandwich with this, that and the other thing and no bread. Don't want the bread. So I stay right. away from that. Chicken's great. Eggs and so on and so forth but one of the things that we found and i've since learned that i can do this on my own without having to go to the 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 store cinnamon cinnamon is a great uh uh uh, what do they call it Um, it it helps you to it helps your body and i don't know if it's the pancreas specifically to stabilize yeah to stabilize the sugar metabolism I take cinnamon almost every day. Whenever I have cereal, I sprinkle it all over my oatmeal. Yeah. I, I love oatmeal. I a container of cinnamon in the store. Yeah. And use it like you would sprinkle salt. Exactly. You just sprinkle it on your food. Well, yeah. my, my wife even I, offered... I've become pretty much <laughs> a vegetarian. Um, I mean, I, I don't mind having some salmon or things like that, but I hardly ever have any meat anymore. Um just eating vegetables and trying to stay healthy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I want to take good care of myself. That's all. Well, I'd like to see you at 100, too. Let me say, I'm not trying not to die. <laughs> I won't stand people. Don't try not to die. It no, doesn't no, no. work. It doesn't work. Enjoy life. Yes. Well, Let me tell you one more thing sure. that you could try to do. Sure. A young woman had polio as a child, so she had body deformities. She said, I've never liked my body, and now I've developed another neurological problem and they tell me I'm going to die and I don't want to die hating my body. So she said, what I'm going to do is lie down naked in front of a mirror and love my body. And when I saw her again, she said, well, I started doing it. I lie down like on the floor in front of this big mirror and I start loving my toes and then my feet and my ankles. And I work up inch by inch. And guess what? A few months later, her disease that was threatening her life was gone. Wow. And to me, that is no coincidence. No. She started loving her body and it did for her what she wanted. 
Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, the body could be saying, look, you're very unhappy and miserable. So let's get out of here. Yeah. You know, leave your body behind because consciousness doesn't die. I mean, I had a near death experience when I was four years old. I didn't know it was anything unusual. I'm a four year old. You know, I didn't talk to everybody about it. I thought, oh, everybody knows this because I almost choked to death on a toy. But I mean, I could think, see, uh, you know, everything, but I didn't have a body. And what fascinates me to this day is when I would talk about it, I'd say the kid on the bed or the boy on the bed. And one day I said, did you listen to yourself? You're on the bed. It's you. And I thought, no, it's not me. That's the body that's dying. I wasn't dying. I was out of my body. And that really struck home for me because, you know, this was a lot of years ago. We weren't into near-death experience. Mm -hmm. But for me to talk that way convinced me that we don't die. But when I say we, I'm talking about our consciousness. Right. You know, what we talk about is past life. It goes on to be incorporated into somebody else's body. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you know the other wise saying that my father uh, used to uh, say uh, was uh, eat, drink, and be merry in moderation because nobody gets out of this world alive. Right, <laughs> and he's absolutely right. But then again, who'd who'd really want to stay here beyond that point? I mean. There comes right. a point, and I was introduced, well, not directly, but indirectly through a story, to a 94-year-old woman who was being taken care of by a caregiver. And this caregiver was sharing the story. And she said that this woman, she was perfectly healthy, uh, perfectly in her right mind, living a great life, having a wonderful time and everything. She'd come over and assist her with whatever she needed. Uh, and finally, one day, this woman came to uh, the caregiver and said, I'm done. There's nothing else I want to do here. I want to go. You know, and again, she wasn't suicidal. She wasn't depressed. She just wanted to go. And I thought, why can't she do that? Why is our society now? You know, and certainly she can. And I have to wonder if then what what you would need to do is well, talk to the body again? I mean, is that is that a good turn technique? Off <laughs> turn off I the tell switch. It's like a light switch. Yeah. Turn it off, it gets dark. Let me just explain my family and my wife's family. Mm-hmm. My father-in-law was quadriplegic from a fall when he got new glasses that confused him and he fell down. At 98, uh, he was such a teacher for me to live in this body for all those years. But then one night we were, the, you know, in the hospital, you know, nursing home type room with him. Mm-hmm. And he said, no dinner, no pills. And we knew he was saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. He died to sleep that night. Mm. Um, my mother-in-law, I used to be an opera singer. I used to go over to have lunch with her in a nursing home that she was in also in her 90s. And I would embarrass her all the time, you know, in, in a humorous way. And... I was at a religious service when this cloud came into the building and, you know, the, into the, what's the word I, well, into the congregation, let's mm-hmm. say. Sanctuary, yeah. And it paused over my head and said, goodbye, Bernie. And then it left. 
I jumped up and drove down to the nursing home, walked in, and the nurse said, oh, you've heard. I said, my mother-in-law told me. I didn't hear. I knew she came and said goodbye because I knew she was saying, it's 1130. I'm not going to have lunch with him again. Um, <laughs> and, you know, go through all the embarrassment. I'll tell you, I got to tell you one story because when she was in her 80s, she developed a hernia from lifting and helping her husband, you know. So took her to the hospital as an outpatient. I was going to do it. Um, she was sedated, a lot of local anesthesia, so she could hear me talking to her through the surgery. Everything's going well. And then at the end, I thought, now, how can I embarrass her so she'll have no pain, no problems, and just go home? And then this wonderful thought comes in my head. Here's this 80-plus-year-old woman lying there, and I yell out at the top of my lungs, now, remember... No sex for six weeks after surgery. <laughs> I go and get dressed, go to the recovery room, and I can't find my mother-in-law. I said, where's my mother-in-law? She came out, refused pain medication, asked for her clothes, and went home. <laughs> and I said, Siegel, you did it. <laughs> but she and I, you know, were close, but she also knew... She's got this crazy son-in-law, so you got to be careful. Yeah. And my father, well, he had many, well, because of his father's TV, chest problems and others. And he said to my mother, I need to get out of here. Mother said, help him out of bed. I said, my, he's talking about his body. So she said, is that right? He said, yeah. All right. When do you want to die? He said, Sunday afternoon. We had a wonderful party. And again, my consciousness, a voice said to me, how did your parents meet when I was going to go to the hospital? I said, I don't know. Ask your mother when you get to the hospital. So I walk in the hospital room. I said to my mother, how did you two meet? And I got upset because I, I thought, hey, dumbbell, give him a hug. Say I love you. But it just shot out of my mouth. How did you two meet? And it changed the whole day. Because my mother said, I was on the beach on vacation with girls I didn't know. I learned they had a terrible reputation. Coming down the beach were a bunch of boys. They tossed coins. Your father lost and got me. And he started smiling. He was in a coma, but he, you could hear. Mm -hmm. And that's something people should never forget. Under anesthesia and coma, people hear you. You know, it's like you're asleep, but yeah. you're still here. Yeah. And... Um, my father died laughing, looking so healthy because my mother was telling stories that I really thought he was going to say, well, I changed my mind. I'm not going to die today. It's fun. But again, <laughs> consciousness. He doesn't know who's coming, but he knows who's coming. Yeah. And so when the last person walked into the room and was announced, he took his last breath and died. And that was the last person who said they were coming. And those are the things that impress the hell out of me, you know, and why I, I call them stories, because you can't deny them. You know, if you say it can't be scientific, it can't be true. It happened. They are true. Yeah. And I would add my wife, who died two and a half years ago, died so peacefully in her sleep that I went to wake her up in the morning. She looked beautiful, perfect. Mm -hmm. And then when I touched her, I realized her body was cold and that she had quietly left. And it was the same night her father died. That was another thing that somebody noticed. 
um, again, my comment is there are no coincidences, you know, that these things happen because she was tired too. Uh, she had, you know, because I'm her husband, I kept her going through innumerable diseases and including a life of MS, but she was still active. Um, you know, we outperformed and outlived all the predictions of doctors, you know, about what's going to happen to my wife. Yeah, according to her neurologist years ago, I would have been a single father with five kids, you know, and yeah. she outlived her doctor because um, I just kept her going and, and learned about medicine and treating the whole person and everything else. Let me ask you a little bit more about <clears throat> this, this process. Um, I have had two experiences uh, with people passing. The first one was when I was a young man, probably probably seven or eight, young child, I guess I should say, maybe nine, maybe a little older. I can't recall exactly when my grandmother on my mother's side of the family passed away in our home. It was Thanksgiving weekend. That night, we sat and watched her favorite movie, The Sound of Music, and it became mine to the extent that I remember when we would visit her in Florence, Arizona, which at that time was a very rural part of uh, Arizona, that um, she took us to a drive-in theater where they were showing The Sound of Music. I still remember that to this day. So anyway, she sees the film that night on TV. We all go to bed. My eldest sister says that she remembers her getting up somewhere around 2 o'clock in the morning, going to the bathroom, coming back, lying down, and that was it. And then she passed away, but we didn't know it until the morning. And I remember that I was almost thrown out of the church at the funeral because I was so upset, and I loved my grandmother greatly. She was a wonderful woman. And then it was a dear friend of ours who passed away in my present wife's and my home back in 2004, 2003. And I remember two days after his passing, we were laying there exhausted in bed because we'd been up for more than 24 hours straight. And I remember waking up. I can't remember ever being so angry. I was so mad. Talk to us a little bit. I know about Kubler-Roth's stages. About? Yeah, well, exactly. What am I angry about? Him leaving, because there was so much I wanted to learn from him. Well, but, I was just going to say, what a wonderful job you did, because these people were not afraid to die in your homes. Yeah. but It meant we're loved. Yeah. We can do this. Yeah. They can accept it. You know, it was a compliment to you. Yeah. Because if dying is a failure and a terrible thing, I got to get out of here and die. <laughs> I don't upset them. But when they could lie there and die in your presence, that's really saying something very significant to you. Thank you for your love. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I do have to say that uh, it was the, 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 the initial experience of my grandmother's passing in our home and that whole process that went on for the next few hours was something that my parents, to their credit, I, I honor them like you wouldn't believe, they did not try to hide anything from us. It was all out in the open. And I just thought that that was one of the best things that, that parents can do for their children. Yeah, I know it's rough, 
but it's part of life. And and yeah, we don't necessarily want to tell well, kids about tell it right away. But when my father died, laughing, there were kids in the room, five, six, ten years old, and he died with a big smile on his face. And they all came running over to me. Is that what dying is like? I was afraid to come here. But it's so beautiful. I mean, it took their fear of death away. And it had never occurred to me, you know what I mean? Because that was my impression Mm -hmm. of death and what was going to happen. But to hear those little pipsqueaks come running to me to say it meant a lot to me. It taught them something and took fear away. And another is, after my mother died and innumerable signs after my wife died, I started finding pennies when my mother died. And one of the grandchildren said, oh, they're pennies from heaven. That blew my mind. (laughs) Again, this little pipsqueak standing in the driveway. And I said, look, these pennies, they weren't here when I went down the driveway. They're here when I come back. Yeah. It must be my mother. Yeah, they're pennies from heaven. And I've had you know, I mean, I keep my wife's picture over my heart. I'll tell you why. But I, there's a whole bunch of dimes and pennies here oh. because we were married on the 11th. And I started finding a dime and a penny in all kinds of bizarre places from in bird baths. I was told to clean, dump it water and leaves out. There's a dime and a penny in the supermarket. Go to aisle three. You go to aisle three. There's a dime and a penny on the belt. Um, I, I don't know. It must be at least 12 times I have found that plus, oh, and one that really convinced me about afterlife. I'm making our bed. You know, it's a queen size bed that we've slept in for decades. So I go around to the other side to pull everything back tight and over. And literally when I picked it up, it pulled out of my hand and flew to the other side. What's lying on the sheet over the mattress? A dime and a penny in the bed. And then I've heard her voice at night. One night I even sat up. I said, do you need any help? And then I said, hey, stupid, your wife is dead. But her voice. So I'm saying, do you need help? Thinking, you know, maybe she needed to change her position. It's just unbelievable all these things that have happened. I, you know, could do a whole show with you on that. Yeah. But, um, you know, even when you go shopping and you pull into a certain parking space, I hear like a voice say, pull in that empty space. And then I go to the trunk to get my, you know, carrying case for right. all the, the groceries. And there's a dime and a penny lying on the ground right at the end of the car. <laughs> oh, last winter. I said to her, honey, I need a new pair of gloves. I got holes in my gloves. It's chilly. I parked the car at the stop and shop parking lot. When I came back to the car, there were a pair of gloves lying next to the driver's door. And the car next to me was the same one as when I drove in. You know what I mean? It wasn't somebody could have dropped them. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the stuff that makes me a believer. So I'm talking to my wife every day, to her spirit, and I still miss her. And last but not least, nine months after she died, my heart started beating totally erratically. And I thought that is such a classical example of what you're preaching and teaching. 
your loved one dies, what organs in your body goes crazy? Your heart. Yeah. I, I was... go to the emergency room. And as soon as I walk in, and I mentioned my wife was born on 9-9, I just walking into the room, I hear a guy yell, put him in room nine. <laughs> they said, there's no bed upstairs for you. Next day, yeah, we got a bed. I go up, what room am I in? Eight one nine. And eight eight means a new beginning. Plus it's a nine nine. Then I look at my wristband. What's my patient number? Eight nine nine six six three three. Oh my All gosh. Nine. And every case, you know, visit also has added up to nine. So I've saved seven or eight of the wristbands and they're all like that. And I tell the nurses now, watch what happens. You know, you'll print it out and it's all going to add up to nine. Oh, once it didn't. And the nurse said, oh, it doesn't. I said, yeah, that's our anniversary, 7 That's what it added up to. <laughs> so the numbers have just been amazing. Yeah. Well, and if people are aware, they'll pick up on those things from their the, yeah. the family and friends who passed on. Say, that's why you can watch crazy programs on television about you know, past lives and paranormal events. And to me, they're all normal now. Yeah. You know, because I've lived them. I've seen it happen. I can't call it abnormal or, or crazy or bizarre. Uh, and I would say to people, and why I wrote the book, Three Men, Six Lives, keep your mind open. Mm. I read the books I write. I'm reading Three Men, Six Lives now because the writing sort of comes from more than me, if you know what I mean, yes. like my consciousness. Mm -hmm. So it's smarter than I am. And by, by using all these other people, I'm able to talk and tell everybody uh, what they ought to experience and know. Because yeah. the three men in the story are the surgeon, the mafia Don, and the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist is the reason they all come together looking for help. But, um, and he experiences a past life at a conference, a psychiatry conference. And then he comes back to the office to share, you know, what he's learned with them. And um, it's listening and reading the words. And one other book, I think you know about, No Endings, Only Beginnings. Also, I've written that in little chapters and I'm reading that for the second or third time now. Um, and it's, again, because there's wisdom in each little story about how to live. You know, a quote from some well-known person and then me. And years ago, might as well keep advertising, 365 <laughs> Prescriptions for the Soul. That's a book I recommend to everybody. Because every day, start your day by reading that day's message. Yeah. And a year later, you read it again. You don't remember it a year later and it keeps reinforcing. And for me, reading it was wonderful because I'm coming across stories that happened 10, 15, 20 years ago that taught me something. Um, and I would tell people, because I know we have to go, um, to be a love warrior. That's my yeah. theme about life. Mm. When somebody's driving you crazy, say, I love you. They don't know what to do with you. And in one case, this was a wild, crazy teenager who was screaming at everybody from his car because of the traffic, cursing and screaming. And the cops 
I couldn't believe it. They refused to go over and talk to him when I asked them to. So I went to his car with our kids saying, he could have a gun, what are you doing? But I went over to him and I said, I just want to tell you something. I love you. I'm sorry your parents don't. What do you think he did? He made a U-turn and drove away in complete silence. Mm. And I hope he went right home to talk to his parents. Because let me give you a quote from Maimonides. Um, A thousand years ago, if people took as good care of themselves as they did their animals, they'd suffer fewer illnesses. And the other was disease. You know, it's not God punishing you. Disease is a loss of health. Mm-hmm. And we're here to help our neighbor find what they've lost. Mm-hmm. And that's something I know is true, that people take as good, better care of their pets. This is a quote from a woman and her husband. Your cat dies of lung cancer. You have eight other cats in the house who are not having, doing too well breathing. What's your solution? She writes to Cat Fancy Magazine. Doug and I now smoke in the yard. We're not killing our cats anymore. We hope you're not killing yours. <laughs> what blew my mind is the magazine publishes it with no comments. <laughs> you know? So even the magazine is saying, yeah, take good care of your pets. I wrote and said, don't you think they ought to take good care of themselves too? Yeah. And they never put my letter in the magazine. Yeah. But that, that's the part. Love yourself. Yeah. And when that lady laid down in front of that mirror yeah. and loved herself... Yeah. Amazing things happen. So amazing things can whenever happen. I go in the bathroom, I often wonder who's that guy in the bathroom. <laughs> hey, there are times I look in the yeah, mirror and I'm going, you, who the heck is that? Know? Yeah. Yeah, it's you. You're not that kid anymore. Yeah. But I can still give him a little love. Absolutely. Bernie Siegel's okay. my guest here on the program, Three Men and Six Lives, and it's a book that's available. Published through sacredstoriespublishing.com yeah, is the and website. They published it. Officially yesterday on my wife's birthday, 99. On so September 9th. Officially available everywhere, Amazon and everything. Absolutely. You know, folks, uh, this is also 2020, the year of perfect vision, where we encourage you to go within to, to not only find that calm and peace that we're all looking for and that safe space that we uh, all deserve and desire, but also to get that insight and, and information. And one of the things that Bernie said to us, and Bernie, I, I have to say this really strikes me, when you are rereading your books, uh, because of the fact that you acknowledge that the writing isn't just coming from you so that when you go back and read it, you're not just reading your words, but you are also reading that great wisdom that came through you that you know you can learn something more from. Got to tell you one more story. Please. The only C I got in four years of college was in creative writing (laughs) because I was thinking and, you know, a science major being a, a doctor. And my first book, Love, Medicine, and Miracles, was number one New York Times bestseller list. But what I realized then, I was telling stories, not writing. I dictated the whole book. We didn't have computers then. Mm. Um, I just sat down and talked. And an editor put it together, you know, mm-hmm. gave it structure. Right. And that's what I do now. It, it, as my wife would say, it comes from God knows where when I would talk or write. You know, it's coming from another place. Yeah. I'm not thinking anymore. And I have to tell you my sense of humor. 
I wrote to my college, Colgate University. I said, I have a New York Times bestseller. If you raise my grade from a C to a B, I would be summa cum laude and have high honors. And I wrote it with a sense of humor, thinking mm -hmm. they'll laugh and, you know, write back. Well, I got a big letter back with no humor. <laughs> we cannot alter grades after you graduate, you know? And, and I thought, oh, those poor guys, I don't know why the hell they couldn't laugh and, and say, hey, Siegel, quit kidding around. But it's, it, it's again, it's letting that inner person come out. Um, Mario Puzo, um, what do you call it? The, uh, the Godfather. Uh -huh. Yeah, he was a friend of mine. And he would sit in his office, say, I'm going to go right now. And you'd look in and he wasn't doing a damn thing. So his girlfriend went in and said, Mario, you said you were going to write. You're not doing anything. You left us. He said, I'm waiting for the characters to tell me what to write. Oh. And that taught me a lot, you know. Oh. And the other was William Soroyan, uh, a little story. A writer who is writing stories about the World War has an assistant. And he says to the assistant, you're quite a writer, too. And he says, I've never written anything. Oh, that letter on your desk to your father. That's only a letter to my father. He said, yeah, then write a letter to everyone. And boy, that helped me too, because <laughs> I realized when I wrote letters to people with cancer and other problems, I wrote a letter. You know, I wasn't thinking, I was responding to them. Mm -hmm. So I'd say to anybody, remember, write letters to everyone. Yeah. Okay. Great. All right, if I go now. <laughs> we'll set but you free. I'll tell you, every time I say something, I think of another story. I was on public television. The person interviewing me said, this is a very interactive program. And then I noticed after a few minutes, she's smiling. And I thought, well, I can't turn around. I got a microphone. I wonder what she saw out the window. Commercial break. I said to her, what was so funny? What's out the window? Nothing funny is out the window. You're funny. I said, this is an interactive program and you haven't stopped talking for 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do realize that and that can be a good angel, thing. By the yeah. way, yeah. he does talking. <laughs> I, I do the talking, but he puts the material in there. Well, I That's always... That's a whole other program. Right. He's been seen by two people, at least, who drew his picture for me and described him in detail. And this is somebody I met in a meditation. Mm. They're telling me he's standing in front of me while I'm talking. So if you want me back to discuss things like that, oh, let me know. Absolutely, Bernie. I will also tell you that uh, when I uh, promote this program to uh, pre folks to be on the program and they want a list of questions, I don't have any questions that I can give you a list of. Because when we do the program, the universe is asking the questions. I'm just That's along right. for the ride. I'm just long right. for the ride. So I'm with you there. I'm with you there. And I thank Bless you so much for giving us so much time. This has been a, a wonderful uh, uh, conversation. And it, it, this has been interactive, okay? 
But the whole point from my perspective of an interview is that we want to hear more from the guest than we do the host. And we have done that on this program and we will have you back, uh, whether right. it's uh, around another book that you will be writing or, as you say, to discuss some of these extraordinary and I'll call them about life, you know, like metaphysical. Choices. Yeah, metaphysical. I like that word. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We'll talk about choices. We'll talk about life and living and uh, and new paradigms for a new world. And again, I thank you yeah, so even much. Shaving your head is something <laughs> meaningful. Yeah. We, we make a note. We'll talk about that. What Jung said, shaving your head uncovers. Oh, folks, that will be a teaser for our next broadcast with okay. Bernie Siegel. Bernie, again, thank you so much. May I ask you three yeah. final questions? They're quick ones. No, okay. Uh, I've asked them of you before when Charlie was on, but I want to ask them of you now as you solo. And the first one is, who's Barney Siegel? Well, I'd say a child of God. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? Helping people. And you're literally, I play the lottery so that if I win, I can make a difference in the world. And finally, what is your life's purpose? My life's purpose. Well, I think we're all here to be co-creators, like God's right hand. So when you get to heaven and they say, you're next on the admission line, what do you say? I say, I'm one of God's children. I'm God's right arm, or God already knows me because I'm doing the work. Here, here. Bernie, again, thank you so much for giving us so much time. I look forward to talking to you again very soon. And thank you for listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. Until our next broadcast podcast, love to lull.